let's uh, let's move on to our next talk, um, which is coming from Beck Purser. Beck will be joining us in a minute. Um, I heard on Wednesday night that this talk of Beck's um, falls into a, a category of talk that is my absolute favourite type of presentation, which is talks that began as rants. And I love that. I absolutely love it. So, hi, Beck. Hi. All right. Are you consulting, collaborating or co-designing and why does it matter? Co-creation, co-design, collaboration or participatory design are terms that you see a lot at the moment, including at this conference. This talk aims to unpack these terms by revisiting their origins and discussing the ethical and political implications of conflating them. My name's Beck Purser. I'm a Senior Manager for Service Design at Transport for New South Wales, and I manage a team of service designers who work across complex, multimodal infrastructure and service planning projects across the state. I'm passionate about participatory design or co-design, public transport and speculative design. And as a graduate of the Design Anthropology Master's Program at Swinburne University, where I specialised in participatory design within an Indigenous context, you can quickly see why this is a topic that's close to my heart. As we gather in this conference in this physically diverse and virtually constructed space, let us take a moment to reflect upon place and doing so recognise the various traditional lands in which we work, live, learn and exist today. We acknowledge the elders, past, present and emerging of the land that we work and live on. And I personally want to acknowledge the Wongal people of the Eora Nation as I speak to you from their land today. So what to expect, as um, Steve gave away, this talk started with a rant that I was having with a friend and a fellow presenter. So it seemed only fitting to include the rant as part of my presentation. This will form the what and the why of my talk. After this, we're going to go over some history. And anyone who has worked with me for more than five minutes can attest to my love of origin stories and always wanting to know where things came from. And then finally, I'm going to give some useful tips in the form of the how and the when. So the what and the why. By conflating these terms, we diminish the value of all of these concepts. Participatory design, co-design, co-creation, cooperative design, open design. These are all terms that have stood for the same or similar things for the last 50 years. Cooperative design is arguably the original term. Though there are many claimed origins from Plato to Russia to Germany, the most widely accepted origin in design context is in Scandinavia in the 1970s and 1980s. When Americans got interested in the Scandinavian approach in the late 80s and early 90s, there was concern that cooperatives sounded too collectivist, even potentially too communist. So it was called participatory design. And this transition to co-design in the late 90s and early 2000s, when the methods started being called participatory and the process began to be called co-design. Some will argue that co-design and co-creation go further. Co-design is participatory design plus the inclusion of stakeholders. And co-creation is this plus the inclusion of end users in the production and delivery phases of a product or service. Open design started in the early 2000s and is part of the open source movement. 
It has the same origins as participatory design, and by 2010, it became a manifesto all on its own. It stretches the concept into the idea of sharing not just the process of design, but also the outcomes. These terms, as I'm sure you can all recognise, are quite convoluted, and they're often used interchangeably, even though there can be arguments made for their differences. For the purpose of today, we're going to mostly use the term co-design and rely on these definitions. These are two of my favourite. The first being a design process that involves end users in the design outcome as active co-designers. This comes from a great reference book called The Universal Methods of Design by Bella Martin and Bruce Hannington. The second one is co-design is an approach to designing with, not for people. It involves sharing power, prioritising relationships and using participatory means and building capacity. This comes from the book Beyond Sticky Notes, Co-Design for Real, which is by a wonderful co-designer called Carrie-Anne McCletcher. These are all phrases that I've either heard or read in the last few years. We co-design the solutions with our internal stakeholders. Our internal co-design workshops had great results. We presented the concepts to participants in our co-design sessions. And they are not co-designed, not a single one of them. These are great examples of collaboration and consultation, but they're not co-designed. And by calling these co-designed, we muddy the waters with our stakeholders and colleagues. We make it hard to implement real co-design initiatives in the future, and we diminish the work of those who do. Instead, we need to say that we collaborate it to design the solutions with our internal stakeholders. Our internal collaboration workshops had great results. We presented concepts to participants in our consultation sessions. The other thing we do by conflating these terms is we diminish the value of consultation and collaboration. None of those represents bad design or design process, but they aren't co-design. Collaboration is a radical act and it should be celebrated. Consultation is an important part of design and democracy. I don't want you to leave today thinking that any of these are better than any others. They're all important. They all deliver value when done authentically, and they are all often done poorly. Co-design is also not doing whatever the participant tells you. Like the example which every millennial in this room will understand, the Homer Simpson car, making exactly what the end user or participant says, this isn't even design or research. Design research is not co-design either. When we ask a participant or an end user to describe their ultimate X or their very best Y, these are research questions and should be analysed accordingly. You can and you should include participatory methods into your design research, but unless participants themselves join you in the design process, this is not co-design. And at this point, you might be wondering, why do I care so much about what is and isn't co-design? You may also be thinking, isn't it just a contraction of two words, co as in together and design? Therefore, if we design together, is that not co-design? To this I say, you can all accept that fireman and fire plus man are not the same thing. Therefore, we can accept that a new and distinct concept can be formed when we put two words together. I, for one, would not appreciate it if you brought me a random man and some more fire if my house was on fire. And that is why this is important. 
Words have meaning and people should get what they ask for. Consultation, collaboration and co-design are all valuable. Consultation is about keeping people informed and finding use issues. Collaboration is about sharing the process with professionals. Co-design is about sharing the process with those who are impacted the most. We're going to jump to some history now, and I'm going to take you through three major developments in co-design and how they changed the practice before we start talking about how they might impact yours. We all owe a great deal of gratitude to Kristen Hedegaard, the father of worker involvement in workplace for computer development and use. His project with the Norwegian Iron and Metal Workers Union, NJMF, in 1971, made the initial moves from traditional research and development to computer systems to working with people to directly changing and making a more active role for the local unions in the changing work tools of its members. The project emphasised the notion that workers have the right and the duty to participate in decisions concerning them, what systems are developed and how those systems are designed. And it seems quite fitting for the first significant participatory approaches to have their origins in Norway and the Scandinavian region, since in the 1960s, this region, more people than ever, agreed that industry and economy as a whole should support the democratic principles in society, not the other way around. This project had a great influence on the following research and development of user participation in systems development, leading to cooperative or participatory design. The main activities in Project Utopia included mutual learning between all active participants, the graphic workers, the computer scientists, and the social scientists. Common study tours of graphic industry exhibits and important laboratories in the US. Requirements specifications for systems were being developed by users instead of the business slash management. The study of a live pilot when the, system, the image system was in real production and the dissemination, especially to graphic workers and the scientific community of results from the process were widely shared. Driven by ideology, Project Utopia led the way for co-design within a work context. It's important to note that consultation and the sharing of information was still crucial during and after this project. Collaboration with those US research arms, including Xerox PACs, Stanford University, and others that were at the forefront of design, of human-centered design, Learning and sharing with other design professionals and computer scientists was an essential part of this project. And co-design was achieved through trust and also need. The industry was changing dramatically. Participants in the process were willing, partly because they had no other option to be. Co-design was seen as a means to ensure that new technologies supported and enhanced workers' knowledge and skills rather than redefined or eliminated their jobs. However, I think it's important to acknowledge that this project was not very ambitious as it could have been. Utopia sought to protect the craftsmanship of occupational groups and retrain those who could not be protected. It did not consider the system as a whole and it wasn't very visionary. It was very reactionary. 
They were not creating a vision for what the future may be. They were only responding to the changes that had and were continuing to happen to them. The next example shows about how co-design moved from the political to the commercial. Danfoss is the largest manufacturing company in Denmark, producing industrial products such as flow meters, temperature sensors, controllers that are used in a diverse range of locations, from supermarkets to wastewater treatment plants and even private homes. Danfoss took the first steps to move the facilitator from behind one-way glass, then the designers went out into the field, and then the users into the design studio. Over the years, their products have gotten more and more complex, but they have continued their focus and their relationship with end users. They make products that are installed by experts and used by experts in their field. The final benefits might be felt by people like you and me, such as clean water, refrigerated products in a supermarket and ferries that move, but the end users are the installers, the plumbers and the crew. A great example project for Danfoss was the Water Vision Project. The aim of this was to investigate opportunities for new products to control wastewater treatment processes. The focus was wastewater plants in Denmark and Sweden, and the development process engaged process operators, technicians, and electricians in the conceptualizing of potential innovations for within an eight to 10 year horizon. Danfoss supplies a large number of components in the use in wastewater and water plants, like flow meters, sensors, valves, and pump drives. The co-design engagement was split into three sections in this project. One, in-field observations with the participants. The designers and the researchers joined them for a full shift, filming their activities as the day went on. Two, collective analysis or sense-making sessions with participants to understand and develop insight from the footage, the notes, and the photos. And then generative workshops where 30 plus people came together, including the co-design participants, the designers, the researchers, developers, usability experts, and marketing professionals to generate solutions. Interestingly, a side effect of this project was that Danfoss identified how siloed their organisation was and how this was stifling innovation. A major obstacle to organising these workshops were that teams were organised by function, flow measuring, pump drives, pollution sensors, valve controls, whereas the innovation lay in integrating products across business units. They had planned to redesign products, but they ended up redesigning themselves. However, they also did redesign a product, launching the water quality meter. This device combined several sensors to produce one reading that operators would cherish, pollution cost. Driven by efficiency and a drive for commercial advantage, Danfoss continued the work focus of co-design. The team decided to challenge three myths of research and development in their practice. One, that researchers must be impartial. Two, that designers cannot be like mere test subjects or they will influence the results. And three, end users do not have the skills or the impartiality to be part of the design process. The last example I want to bring your attention to is a group which is the Projects for Public Spaces. 
Urban design and architecture have been one of the key places where these methods and philosophies have been embraced by practitioners who create for end users who are not necessarily positioned as the experts. They are also some of the earliest and best examples of this approach being implemented in Australia. And since I work for transport on large infrastructure projects, they are also a passion of mine. Since 1975, Project for Public Spaces has helped over 3,500 communities across 50 countries reimagine their futures and meet these needs through public space. They started by building on the research of William Holly White and have grown into the go-to resource for placemaking as an approach to designing and managing public spaces with the people who use them every day. The original project was titled Public Place, sorry, Public Spaces to be Planned as If People Matter, which is somehow grim and inspiring all at the same time. William Holly White is a legendary urbanist and professional people watcher whose similar work in the study of human behaviour in urban setting guides many urban designers and placemakers today. He did at a time, he did this at a time when such anthropological observation had been applied to the studies of indigenous cultures in far off and considered exotic locations, but almost never to the global West. While working for the New York City Planning Commission in 1969, White began to wonder how the newly planned city spaces were actually working out, something no one had considered to ask in research before. This curiosity led to the Streetlight Project, a pioneering study in pedestrian behaviour and city dynamics. Projects for public spaces have taken his insights, but also his values, and has extended them into a tool, into a set of design tools and approaches that can be used to design spaces with the people who use them. There's a woman called Penelope Coombs that's worth looking up. She's an urban futurist who brought this practice to Australia and New Zealand in the 1990s with projects across Melbourne, Sydney, the Sunshine Coast, Perth and Auckland, including the Perth Cultural Centre pictured here. Away from the experts and work, Project for Public Spaces led the way for co-design within the everyday. They weren't necessarily the first to do this, but they are one of the best examples of how design was taken away from the workplace and away from experts. And when I say experts, I want to call out that these people are still experts in their own lives and needs. They just don't have the qualifications or the certifications in the same way that the previous project participants did. The projects were designed with the community going much further than simply consulting them along the way. However, it's important to mention that consultation was still a key part of the process, as not every community member wants or can be included in the design process. Collaboration is still needed, not just with the experts, but there's often multiple landowners involved, from different levels of government to different councils to private landowners to utilities that are just under the ground. And co-design was built over time. With these projects, we must be careful not to include only squeaky wheels. It's important that we don't only engage those that have the time, energy and the resources to show up at community forums. So what can we learn from those who came before us with the when and the how? We're going to start by focusing on the when. 
Apart from great lunchroom trivia, if we ever get back there, these are the three key points that I want you to take away with you from today's session. Co-design is particularly suitable when, one, designing for, not with, complex systems. Two, you need to be humble, not impartial. And three, long-term relationships can be cultivated and valued. Let's dive into each one. Designing for, not with, complex systems. The products created and manufactured by Danfoss are often only a small part of the technical system, creating exceedingly complex and interdependent environments in which small changes can have large ramifications. The direct inclusion of end users help the design team through their ability to understand and anticipate complexities, potential issues and benefits of how solutions might impact the context as a whole. Unlike Project Utopia, which was doing this for the good of the workers, Danfrost was doing it for efficiency. It is easier and cheaper to work directly with the end users than for designers to learn all the complexities of their trade. Therefore, I wish to present this framework for identifying co-design opportunities. It has two axes. One across the center is the complexity of use, and then up and down is the complexity of products. Co-design is not as suitable when the product use is simple, but the delivery or the creation is complex. Think insurance, public transport, and telecommunications. Different parts of one organisation can also be more or less suitable. Starting with a banking example to better understand this, how people use savings accounts can be very complicated. They have strategies for putting money in, ways to stop money coming out. Some people will have multiple accounts with a different goal for each. Some people will use one to manage business expenses and others to manage personal expenses. Some people will keep them secret even from their own partner, and sometimes try to keep them secret from themselves. Others will use one to manage childhood expenses due to complex custody agreements. There's a lot of complicated use going on, but the product is quite simple. They're highly regulated, and apart from interest rates and some service experience, they're all about the same. Whereas home loans are kind of the opposite. The product is pretty complex and it requires a lot of people to set it up. But apart from the occasional small to mid-sized developer, the use is very simple. They pay money in, occasionally check them, and may revisit every three to four years to see if they can get a better interest rate. Public transport services with the complexity of land use ownership, track form geometry, safety and engineering conditions, etc., is not the best place for co-design, purely because the level of conditions and constraints that you would need to guide participants through is very onerous. However, the spaces adjacent to public transport are relatively simple in their complex in their construction, but very complex in their use. People use them to do business, legal and illegal. They socialise, they study, they fall in love, they relax, they exercise, they wait, they plan. And some people even live there. This makes these spaces a great opportunity for co-design. I do want to stress that there is still value to doing participatory design activities in all the quadrants or even co-design. 
but where the complexity of the use meets simplicity of the product is a true opportunity area. Be humble, but not impatient. Number two, co-design is not a set of tools. It's an approach to sharing the power of the design process with those who are impacted the most. This is a process which is not for everyone or every organisation. We all know a designer who cannot test and should not test their own designs. They do great work, design amazing things, but cannot be impartial when sitting next to a participant. No matter how much they try, they cannot help but grab the mouse, pull a face, or even correct a participant. Humble is different but the same. Market research and many other forms of social research put being impartial on a pedestal. But co-design, this differs. You don't need to be impartial. You need to be humble, curious, and dedicated to shifting the power imbalance in these relationships. Co-design can be the worst of two worlds. You still hold the responsibility as the professional in the room, but you give up control of power. You're still responsible for the outcomes and its impacts. We talked in the beginning about how some of the name changes have been to shake off the politics of this concept, but co-design will always be a political act. Three, the value of long-term relationships. The onboarding process is long and difficult, particularly when the best co-design participants are those with unique lived experience. Co-design works best when you can build the engagement over time and multiple projects. This is not just about skills and understanding. It's about building trust. This is especially true of workplace design scenarios where you're asking people to teach you or share with you their marketable skills or even their unsanctioned workarounds. This is one of the key successes in Project Utopia. The workers trusted the union, so they became willing participants in the process that was going to drastically and dramatically destabilize their work. And this is not a new concept for design researchers. We're all familiar with building rapport. But I think we have to be mindful that the needs of this and the effort required to be successful for co-design can be taken to an extreme. Therefore, if you are considering co-design, I counsel you to think, am I really ready for the investment of time and emotional labour? And am I able to find valuable and willing participants who are also ready? That was a lot of when. So let's dive into some hows. There's three ways. The three things I want to cover before we finish up today is recruiting. So focusing on lived experience, not demographic representation, onboarding and facilitation, being a great host, and starting small and then figuring out how to keep it going. Lived experience over demographic representation. This also isn't new for design research. We're often pushed to demonstrate how our samples are representative, even when that's impossible with qualitative research. This is a harder process, though, with the level of commitment for co-design engagements may require. Have a mindset of employing co-workers rather than recruiting participants. People should be compensated for their time, but you also need to pitch it to them as well because you're asking for more than their time. You're asking for their creativity. And that can take more than money. In the pitch and plan, 
make sure to consider from the process about what they will get. For Danfoss, it was better equipment. For projects for public spaces, it was a better place to live. This is a hugely important question when engaging with disadvantaged groups. Is your project going to deliver value or just extract it? Onboarding and facilitation, be a great host. Co-design as an approach is not just a weird and see attitude. You're inviting people into the design space. You have to be a host. You need to consider their needs, plan how everyone, including the professional stakeholders, can get the best out of their time together. What you've learned from event planning, experience design, and even wedding planning will help you here. The most important thing is to take on the mindset of the host. You are responsible for people's engagement, their safety, both emotional and physical, their fun, and their output. Start small and keep going. Find a design problem, maybe a product type that could be suitable for co-design. Consider participants that you've already engaged. Would any of the fake and be suitable for joining the design process for this problem? Design an engagement that leaves the door open for further engagement and build relationships. This is difficult to do when you're consulting, but if you are in-house or client side, this is a great opportunity. If you're not client-side, consider how participants you meet may be suitable for other clients' projects. Can you build a relationship agnostic of the product owner or the particular brand? Now, we only had 40 minutes today, so there's no way that I can provide you a full guide to how to plan, deliver, and design co-design engagement. These are just three resources that I wanted to point you in the direction of. There's lots of writers, thought leaders, and guides that you should look to, but these are three I recommend, in no way an exhausted list. First is Beyond Sticky Notes. It's a practical guide to real co-design doing. Kellyanne has done a great job pulling together a very actionable guide, which I wish existed when I was doing my master's program. Liz or Elizabeth Saunders is one of the seminal researchers in co-design and she provides some great resources at her website, maketools.com. And finally, anything by Jakob Burr. If nothing else, I want you to take away from today. Don't be ashamed of collaboration or consultation, not of the activities or the terms. If you're considering co-design, take the time to think about whether you have the right product, the right audience, the right mindset. There's nothing wrong with including participatory methods into your work. Start small and take some steps towards co-design. Maybe you won't get there, but maybe you never needed to. Thank you for your time and attention today. Thanks so much, Beck. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you, yeah. Excellent, wonderful. Um, so uh, a couple of questions uh, have come through. Uh, first one from Michaela. Where do you see the future of the practice and terminology of co-design going? Um, or should we continue to pioneer the right usage of this term? Oh, I would like to keep the term. I quite like that the approach is called co-design and the methods are called participatory design or participatory methods. Mm -hmm. um, but whether we can maintain that is questionable, to be honest. Are there areas for you where, um, like, we, we, we haven't pushed into um, spaces yet where co-design and participatory methods can really 
um, add value, but we don't seem to be doing it yet? Uh, I haven't seen many examples of it done within medical or patient settings, but okay. I think there are some really beautiful, you know, work that could be done in that space because uh, there is such an issue of the power imbalance. So anything where there is a high power imbalance between the people delivering the service and the people experiencing the service feels like an area that we should be looking at um, just from an ethical standpoint. Nice. Um, someone asked, being impartial when conducting research is drilled into us as design researchers. How can we shift to the humble approach? I think you shift when you... You give up a pretense that you don't care. You know, one of the speakers this morning was talking about, it was um, about disability and working with people with dementia. Sorry, that was yesterday, pardon me. And how they really cared. They really got involved in these people's lives. And I think it's worth not punishing ourselves for that as designers and researchers. I mean, it, it, it comes at a cost. And, and Ali and Bridget were talking about yeah. like the, the emotional burden of that work and mm. the emotional cost of that work. So it's not it's not without its um, cost, I guess. Absolutely. And that's one of the warnings I had in the talk about, you know, the onboarding yeah. process and being a host, being a lot of emotional labour. Mm. I mean, it's, um, I think, uh, co-design as a practice has a greater reliance on a shared space of vulnerability mm. um, than other methods do where, you know, we, we maintain a, um, an objective distance or at least attempt to maintain an objective distance from, from the research subject. Yeah. Um, that, that all goes when we, when we um, sort of follow this kind of method. Absolutely, yeah. And particularly when you're doing the analysis or the sense-making with the participants as well. It's an extra level of kind of sensitivity. Yeah. How does that, I mean, when we, when we are interpreting what we've seen, um, that can be like, and, and we're doing that with others and particularly sort of with participants to, to use that distinction. Um, how sensitive do you need to be to that interpretation? Um, like the, I know the potential for judgment, the potential for defensiveness um, in that sense-making activity. Oh, absolutely. I think it was when I was doing my master's project mm. and I was working with AIM, which is an Indigenous mentoring organisation. At the same time, I was working um, in insurance and doing research for work and doing research for my master's program on part-time. And it really struck me the different ways that I spoke about participants. Um, mm. You know, when before I started that project, before I started going through that process, I would often come out of research and say, you know, they said they did research, but they don't really know what research is, um, which is true, but it's positioned in a very judgmental way that, you know, mm. I'm saying that the participant doesn't understand, like almost the problem is with them. Um, mm. And it was amazing how that language and my perspective of it changed when I was working with AIM and I was researching past um, mental who had been through the program and part yeah. of that process of working with uh, First Nations peoples is I gave them an opportunity to have all of my research notes and recordings as well as a copy of the final output 
Uh, and not everybody took me up on that, but four participants did. And it really made me think about how I write my notes and how I tell these people's stories in a very respectful fashion. Mm. Uh, so, um, yeah. So after that, I stopped coming out of research interviews with insurance participants saying that they didn't understand how to research and started talking about how our products were the problem. Um, you, you made mention there of the, the way in which the research is presented. Um, does that change? Like, do we, do we start getting the people with the lived experience um, themselves or, you know, to tell their own stories to, to senior stakeholders? Like, you know, after, after the analysis and the synthesis is done, do you have them present their own analysis? I haven't done that in the past for co-design projects, but I have yeah. done it in the past for projects where we've been producing uh, personas, for example, where we've okay. pulled out participants from the research pool um, mm. and hearing it from someone's voice is such an enormous difference. Like whether you can do that from a video recording with them or having them actually in the room uh, can be hugely impactful. You just need to be careful that... Um, I think it was a different presenter who talked about how people will pick, you know, one experience, one thing that one participant said, and they will yeah. run with it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess it has to be curated very well. Yeah, and I'm equally conscious of what Katie was just talking about in terms of the different types of insight um, and the the strength that that can um, have to it when the participant is the one telling it. Yeah. Um, so even though they might sit there going, I already knew that, maybe maybe not to the extent when it's told with the emotion of the person who's been experiencing it. Absolutely. There's definitely often a severity issue that is not communicated in even a quote. Yeah. Um, Isabel just asked the question, when working on a project where co-design couldn't be carried out throughout the process, um, will it be most valuable to do this during the initial research phase or later during the ideation phase? I guess like if you had to choose. I guess it would be what's the reason why the project isn't suitable or can't be carried out? You know, is it, say, a time or a cost or a privacy thing that's mm. resulted in co-design not being able to be carried through the entire process? Um, mm -hmm. You know, I would certainly say that right in that kind of generative part of the project, you know, right in that initial sort of discovery phase is where the most value of high participant input can be. Um, but it could be a project where, you know, like public transport, where the complexity of it just makes it unsuitable. However, you could get into the design phase and find that there are small design problems or interactions that, you know, would be very suitable for co-design just to solve this one thing, like how to get the bike on the bike rack on the vehicle, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. But thank you so much, Rick. That's been wonderful. Thank you so much as well.